When Silence Screams by Mark Edward Langley. In the third book of the series, Arthur Nakai, now armed with his newly minted private investigator's license, has visitors on his doorstep at White Mesa. Melanie Manygoats and her young son arrive on a cold winter's day, seeking his help, locating her missing daughter, whom she fears has become one of the stolen. Author accepts and soon finds himself wading through the world of teenage prostitution, where he discovers April has already been sold to a man known to everyone in the trade as the Cuban. Running underage girls is his business, and the revolving door of the flesh trade is always rotating. Meanwhile, a 15-year-old girl goes missing, her bicycle found hidden among shrub bushes under a bridge over an empty desert wash. Are the cases related or simply part of the bigger, more horrifying picture plaguing Arthur's beloved Dinate? When Silence Screams by Mark Edward Langley is now available everywhere you get your books. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be original stories. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season four, A Word Before Dying. This season contains original stories written just for you and built around the classic mystery theme of The Last Word Before Dying. Episode four is about truth being wilder than fiction. This is The Legend of El Malena by Mark Edward Langley. Chapter 1, Two Strangers Meet Eddie Lanning, a curious young journalist chasing stories for a shabby paranormal magazine, sat in a corner booth of El Nuevo Bar in New Mexico Boot Hill town of Las Palmas. He was listening to an elderly local, Hector Martinez, a gray-haired man with a bushy mustache in his early 80s, recite the town's tragic story over a couple of beers. Eddie had just made it into Generation Z by his father's persistence and his mother's determination. He was proud of his curly blonde hair that sat above his round gold-rimmed glasses and his boyish face. He had come to hear a story that dated back to the late 1800s and, as a resigned skeptic, never took any story he followed at face value until he could prove or disprove it. But what the hell, he figured, this one had intrigued him enough to drive the almost 700 miles from his home in Pueblo, Colorado, to the small border town to either prove the ghost real or just another hoax. And then there was the intimation of a pile of gold buried by Coronado during his escapes in the area. But it was stories with the supernatural connection that has always captivated Eddie's 26-year-old mind, and he wasn't going to let this one slip by. No, sir. Especially after his magazine editor had told him to bring back something worth reading or not to come back at all. And this story had a chance of just being that. 
Her name was Adelina, Hector had been saying, his thick accent framing each word with rich meaning. And her life was full of promise. After all, she was getting married, and it was a happy day. Hector paused to drink from his beer before continuing. Later that night, after the joyous coupling that comes during the wedding night, they fell asleep. But when Adelina awoke later that night, she found her new husband gone. She put on her wedding dress and went looking for him. Go on, Eddie said, leaning back in the booth, watching the seconds tick away on his digital recorder. She searched the town, her heart beating as if it would burst from her chest if she did not find him. She looked everywhere, especially the saloon and the old hotel. The old man drained another inch from the bottle. It is told she found a knife left outside the blacksmith shop as she walked by before heading into the hotel. One of the working girls at the hotel said that she had seen him and told her where to find him. When Adelina went upstairs to the room, she found her husband in bed with another woman. Eddie felt his interest rise only slightly. She murdered them, he said. Yeah, I know. I read the story online. I want to know what's the angle, you know, the gimmick. What makes people believe this stuff actually happened? Is there any proof? Only stories, Hector said. But if that is all you know, you know nothing. Angered by his treason, she became overwhelmed with rage, and yes, she locked the door and murdered them both. But there's more to the story. A woman seething with rage is nothing new, Eddie blurted. History is filled with them. What's the real reason the story persists? I read somewhere that there was talk of Spanish gold maybe being buried somewhere around the church by Coronado when he came through in 1540, a stash he was going to come back and dig up later. Maybe someone found his gold during the building of the church or whatever and kept it hidden for themselves. And if someone got too close to figuring anything out, they killed them. Chapter 2, Coronado and a Search for Gold Hector smiled and then laughed. Coronado never found his seven cities of gold, my friend. And if there was this hidden bounty you speak of, this town would be much better off if they found it and used it. I'm speaking of things that took place in my grandfather's time. You think one family has been hoarding gold and killing people all these years? That's ridiculous. My father was told of El Malena when I, as I was when I was small. I told my children, and they have told my grandchildren. The story of El Malena is more real than your story of fictional gold. Eddie nodded. Sounds like just another mythical story to keep kids in line to me. Hector sighed and continued. Anyway, the people downstairs in the hotel heard everything you see. Then it went very, very quiet. By the time the sheriff could be located, 20 minutes had passed. When he forced his way into the room, he and the onlookers behind him were met with a horrific sight. Eddie gulped down some more beer, checked his watch. Aldelena had used the white knife on both of them, Hector said, but on her cheating husband the most. How, Eddie found himself saying unconsciously. The old man glanced around the bar. Eddie wasn't the only one whose ears were paying attention. As further punishment, Adelina had cut out his tongue because of his lies. She cut off his manhood because of his infidelity. And she cut out his heart because of what he had done to hers. 
By doing this, her wedding dress was covered in blood. Eddie remembered the story of the murder he had read before making the trip. Didn't they try to hang her from a tree here in the town? Hector nodded. Sure, they tried, but they could not. Because she was evil, right? Eddie scoffed. No, Hector said. There was no need for a trial in those days. The sheriff had caught her in the act. In 1893, this place was a dusty town with little going for it. We didn't even have a judge. So justice would have to be served without him. Hector finished off his beer and motioned to Eddie for another. Eddie complied. Hector took a fresh swig from his new bottle and continued. The rope broke with her weight because it was old. While everyone held their breath in shock, she jumped up and ran to the old church, the one you passed on your way into our little town. Hector wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. After what happened next, they moved the town away from the church. The original town was allowed to become one of the Southwest's many ghost towns. They even changed the name so the curse would not follow them. Eddie finished his beer and ordered another. No one knows how she made it, Hector said, but she managed to get to the sanctuary of the church and lock its doors. The padre had been officiating over the hanging, so he was not in the church. He tried to talk her into coming out, but she would not. They could hear her crying and sighing, moaning woefully. Some of the townspeople showed up with torches, determined to burn the evil out with the purification of fire. The sheriff and the padre tried to talk sense into them, but with their eyes had been filled with bloodthirst that had been born from fear, and the padre later described it. Damn it, he said. That's right out of Mary Shelley. Hector elaborated. It was the darkest night when they set fire to the church. It wasn't long before they could hear her screaming from inside and cursing those who had set the fire and those who would set foot in the church for all eternity. That is when the legend of Elmalena was born. Chapter 3, The Story of Adelina's Revenge Wasn't anyone afraid of the wrath of God for burning the church, Eddie said? That's pretty much a sacrilege in anyone's denomination. Hector shrugged. Who can tell what logic terrified minds use in those moments? They may have viewed the fire as punishment as well as purification for her damned soul. The church was mostly gutted, but the walls are pure adobe. When the roof collapsed, it destroyed everything inside. The fire was only put out when no more screams could be heard. Eddie paused. What does Elmalena mean? It means the man-eater. Whoa, Eddie said as the revelation hit him. Did they think she was going to eat the pieces she cut? Hector shrugged. You know how frightened people can be. Their minds try to rationalize an irrational act, so fantasy takes control. I do not know if she was going to do that or simply did it out of anger from being betrayed. I read that there's many deaths attributed to Emelena, Eddie said. Do you know how many? The article only skirted around it. Hector thought back, scratched his gray stubble chin. There has been only a handful over the years. During the daylight, it's safe to enter the old church. Those who enter after dusk become the prey of Elmalena. Have you ever seen her? Eddie asked. Hector shook his head. No, I've never been foolish enough to venture into the church. As I have said, no one from around here will go near it because they are all believers. Hector grinned. Long ago, I was mayor here. I ran this town, got businesses to come here, gave people jobs. That was over 40 years ago. 
Now the business is gone and we're back to where we started. Hector drank another swig of beer. It's only outsiders like yourself who come here, people who come to test the legend. They come to hear the crying bride or find the fake gold. Some, I've heard, are too scared to get close enough to the church at night. They say they can feel themselves being watched. Others have gotten close enough to say that they heard her screaming as she burns. Is that why you've come, you and your magazine? Eddie stopped his recorder and drank his beer. Did they all die as her husband did? Hector sat quiet, and then he said, the same way. The body of a man is usually found with his tongue cut out, his genitals lopped off, and his heart removed as if the knife had been used to cut it from his chest. Hector looked Eddie straight in the eyes. You should be aware, my friend. Leave now. Do not do this. Only one man has ever entered the church and survived a Malena, and he was driven mad. Chapter 4, Sole Survivor Eddie's resolve had been bolstered with the talk of the sole survivor. Perhaps there was something to this story after all, something that was worth checking out. At least now he had a hook that might satisfy his editor. Who's the survivor, Eddie said, turning his recorder back on. Where can I find him? Hector exhaled with the sadness that came from his heart. Why do you want to know? I tell you, he was driven mad. He's insane, stuck in some psychiatric hospital in Las Cruces. Eddie refused to be dissuaded. Do you know which one? Hector gave a cursory thought. Three Bridges Mental Health Center. His name is Ignacio Ramirez. His family was forced to admit him because the court-appointed psychiatrist who examined him recommended it. Eddie said, do you think they'll let me talk to him? Hector shrugged. I do not know, but I tell you, you will not learn anything from him. Hector circled an index finger next to the side of his head. He's cuckoo. No matter what he may tell you, it will be useless to you. They say he just sits there, staring out a window, rocking and muttering a prayer over and over, day in, day out. They say that is why Amalena did not kill him, because he was not right in his head to begin with. She considered him an innocent. Eddie cocked his head, curious about this new twist. What do you mean? When he was born, Hector elaborated, he wasn't right, you know? As he grew up, it became more evident that his faculties weren't all there. You mean he was retarded, Eddie said? Hector grinned cynically. They call them intellectually disabled now. But yes, as he grew up, it was discovered that he could do menial tasks, so they put him to work around the church, taking care of small things that needed to be done. Eddie stopped his recorder again. I'm going to see if I can talk to him. Maybe I can get something important out of him. I wish you the best, Hector said. Maybe what he will tell you will convince you to stop this foolishness, because what you are doing is foolish. You must leave now, before anything happens to you. I do not wish to see you become another victim of Elmalena. I'm going to Three Bridges tomorrow, old man, Eddie vowed. And if he can prove to me that there's something to all this, I'll be back to see Elmalena for myself tomorrow night. Hector raised his beer bottle and clinked it with Eddie's. Vaya con Dios, my friend. Chapter 5, The Butterfly Tale 
Around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Eddie turned off at Delray Boulevard in Las Cruces, New Mexico, where the blue rectangular sign proclaimed Three Bridges Mental Health Center. Eddie followed the blacktop as it veered to the right and took note of the surrounding desert along with the dry wash that ran through it in the near distance. The hospital sat between Delray Boulevard and Interstate 25, two main arteries that separated the patients in the hospital from the acres of upper middle class houses that had sprung up around it in recent years. And the tall tan wall that surrounded the hospital complex helped to keep the residents at ease. The parking lot itself was an elongated triangle resembling that of a doorstop. Eddie followed the blacktop toward the main entrance, parked his car next to a few white vans and SUVs at the left of the first row of spaces. How would he worm his way into the hospital, he wondered. He knew no one on staff really had no idea of what he was going to do. He supposed he could do what he had seen done in a myriad of television shows and movies and act like he was looking for a home for a mentally disturbed relative in need of constant care. Or maybe he could, after finding some way in, pass himself off as a hospital employee, a doctor, or an orderly maybe. But how would he locate Ignacio Ramirez? How would he recognize him? He didn't know him by looks, and he sure as hell had no idea what schedule they had him on. He could be anywhere in the sprawling single-story building. He had glanced online on his phone before he left, noting the outside tennis courts and swimming pool and exercise yard hidden behind the large tan walls. For all he knew, Ignacio Ramirez would be being wheeled out around the asphalt walking trail or doing any, any number of things. If he was lucky, he would spot someone showing his room number, and that would give him a place to start. Eddie turned off the car and took a deep breath. He was about to find out if he could pull this off. The interior of the hospital was like any other, sterile and cold. A short, full-figured woman with bright eyes and shoulder-length dark hair sat at the information desk. She looked up and smiled at as Eddie wandered up. Can I help you? She said in a fluttery voice. I hope so, Melissa, Eddie said, noticing the name pinned to her blue polo shirt. I'm hoping to get a small tour of the place and some questions answered. Is there someone I can speak with? Her grin widened. Do you have an appointment? Eddie grinned sheepishly. I'm sorry, but I don't. This was kind of a last minute thing. I have an uncle who recently fell ill, and I was told by the court-appointed psychiatrist that he would have to be admitted to a place like this. Eddie could tell this last bit of his statement had caused her to screw up her face with the use of his term, like this, and he apologized. I can check and see if one of the staff can meet you. She picked out the phone and tapped out a number with the end of a pencil. You have to leave your phone here before renting the facility. Eddie didn't hesitate. He pulled his cell phone from his pocket and placed it on the counter of the main desk. The young woman smiled and took it. I'll put it on a locker for you to pick up before you leave. Do you have anything that could be considered a weapon? She continued. A weapon means anything like a nail file, tweezers, scissors, knives, anything like that. Eddie shook his head. Mr. Lassiter, there's a gentleman here that'd like a tour of our facility, Melissa said. Do you have time? She paused, listening. Thank you, Mr. Lassiter. She hung up. I'm sorry, but Mr. Lassiter is in a meeting right now and he won't be able to meet with you. She handed Eddie back his phone. He asked if he could come back tomorrow, say around noon. Well, that didn't work, Eddie told himself. Perhaps a desperate tactic was in order. He leaned on the front desk and spoke softly. Look, Melissa, I'm actually a reporter here to see if I can speak with Ignacio Ramirez. 
He pulled out his credentials, reached into his wallet, and dug out a 20. Melissa's face screwed up again. What is he to you? I'm doing a story, Eddie explained, and Mr. Ramirez is the only survivor of a certain event that can tell me anything. I know you'd like to help me. You can't make much as a receptionist here. Heck, most of the staff in my doctor's office quit to work at McDonald's during COVID. Melissa looked around and grinned mischievously. Add four more to that 20, and that'll get you 10 minutes with him. Eddie dug out four more Jacksons from his wallet, leaving him with nothing. He folded them into the palm of his hand and reached over the counter to shake her hand. Eddie felt the small bundle leave his palm and disappear into hers. Give me back your phone, she ordered. Eddie did as he was told. Do you have any alcohol or drugs or drug paraphernalia or cigarettes with you, Melissa said? If so, I will put those in the locker with your phone. Drugs, Eddie said, astonished. You gotta be kidding me. Melissa smiled. You'd be surprised at what we find coming in here. Just last week, we had a relative of a guest try to bring in some weed and rolling paper tucked inside a box of Band-Aids. She cocked her head and shrugged. I've seen all kinds. She checked her computer. He's in free time right now. That's down the main corridor on the left. You'll pass the first corridor, and then you'll turn right at the second corridor. Group room three, at the end. The windows face the desert. Looking out at seems to calm most of our guests. Melissa gave him a visitor badge and a blue mask. Ask me where the bathroom is. What? Eddie said. There are many cameras in the lobby, so ask me where the bathroom is, she repeated. He complied. Are there cameras in the corridors? Of course, Melissa remarked. That's why you only have about 10 minutes. The mask will help a little, so make it quick once you find him. She continued her smile as she pointed to the corridor on the left. He'll be the one... I know, Eddie said, sitting by the window rocking. He clipped the badge to his collar, stretched the mask over his face, and proceeded down the corridor. Chapter 6. Eddie Gets the Story Group Room 3 was the size of a grade school classroom. There were a handful of people in various stages of dress clustered around a few tables, mostly, it seemed to Eddie, in their own clothes, but minus belts and shoelaces, anything that could be considered deadly in a place such as this. There was one orderly stationed against the wall, keeping a watchful eye on his guests, as Melissa called them. Eddie nodded to him and looked around the room. A man sat in a wheelchair rocking forward and back and seemed to be muttering to himself. None of the guests wore masks. Probably, Eddie figured, because they wouldn't keep them on anyway and hadn't seen anyone until the COVID restrictions had recently been lifted. Eddie went over, pulled a plastic chair from one of the tables and sat next to Ignacio Ramirez. Mr. Ramirez, he said calmly, I need to ask you some questions about Almalena. Ignacio Ramirez suddenly stopped rocking. His breathing began to quicken and his eyes widened. No, no, he said, shaking his head nervously. No, no. You're the only one who has survived seeing her. Eddie pulled out his digital recorder and hid it from the guard's view. What can you tell me about her? I can tell you nothing, Ramirez muttered. Go away. Eddie leaned in, keeping his voice low. Is there Spanish gold hidden somewhere around the old church? Is that what El Molina is guarding? Ramirez's eyes shot sideways, his face followed. 
Elmalina is real, he insisted. She is there. She is so beautiful, but she is very evil. I know she is real. I saw her with my own eyes. I will never forget her face. Eddie decided to go basic. Why did you go into the church? Suddenly Ramirez's eyes lit up. Looking for butterflies, he said. Butterflies, Eddie repeated. Yes, Ramirez said excitedly. I was looking for the alfalfa butterfly. They have the most beautiful bright yellow wings edged in black. I collect them. They come out at night to feed on the alfalfa nectar growing in the fields, not too far from the church. Eddie said, so you went inside the church to get a butterfly? Yes, he said. I saw it in the moonlight fly into the church. I went inside to see if I could catch it. Eddie paused to check on the orderly standing guard and then his watch. When did you see Amelina? The excitement drained quickly from Ramirez's face. I hear her at first. I hear her crying, sobbing from her broken heart. Then she began to scream as the flames reached up for her. Ramirez paused. And then I saw her. She rose up from the floor and floated in the air in front of me. She glided in her dress of white and moved toward me from the back of the church. I crossed my heart and ran for my life. She flew after me, chasing me. I felt her hands reaching out for me as I opened the doors of the church and dove into the dirt. Martinez shivered as he recited his night of terror. I rolled over to look back at the door. Elmalena was there, looking down at me, staring right through me like she was looking into my soul. Finally, she screamed one last time and slammed the doors of the church shut. Why didn't she grab you, Eddie probed. Why didn't she simply come out of the church after you? I think it is because her soul is forever trapped into church, Ramirez said. There's no way for her. Out. She is held there by God himself. Suddenly, a man entered in a guard's uniform and nodded toward the orderly. They both read Eddie's side in what seemed like seconds. Please come with us, sir, the guard insisted. I think you've bothered Mr. Ramirez long enough. Ignacio Ramirez said nothing. He just went back to his rocking and prayer reciting. With a strong gasp of the orderly's hand on Eddie's right bicep, Eddie was jerked to his feet, swiftly pocketing his digital recorder with the ease of a sleight-of-hand magician. At the front desk, he was stripped of his visitor badge and sent on his way. Melissa had been replaced by another young woman with blonde hair and a serious look on her face. Probably, Eddie thought, Melissa had been carted off and was facing some sort of corporate discipline. The guards kept a close watch on Eddie's actions and seemed satisfied to watch him climb into his car and drive away. Eddie got back in enough time to grab a bite to eat and plan out his task for the evening. Was Elmalena real? Could she be? In the frail mind of a mad in a mental health facility, she was real enough. But Eddie couldn't bring himself to believe she was more than simply a figment of people's frightened imaginations. Now gold. Gold was something he could see creating this elaborate charade for. Greed was always the key to the souls of most men. If he were to stumble upon a cache of it, hidden from time itself, could he not prove the legend false? Eddie would have to see for himself, witness the white-frocked apparition floating in the air, hearing the crying and the screams of burning flesh if it truly existed. And tonight was going to be the night. Chapter 7, Night of the Dead The headlights of Eddie's car illuminated the burned-out carcass of the old church. 
It sat back from the main road, and on a night like this, Eddie thought, it seemed to be lying in wait for those who dared to seek to find the truth. The design of the church had been one of the Spanish construction made of oak poles that had been cut from trees harvested in the Animus Mountains and placed well in the adobe walls. The building itself was a small rectangle with the open doors recessed five feet beneath the arched way below the bell tower. Atop the tower's mission-style roof sat a single white cross that still managed to catch the eerie moonlight. The sky was filled with the constellation of stars that made Eddie second-guess their intention. Taking out his cell phone, he recorded video as he approached the front doors. To the right, nestled among desert grasses and scraggly brushes, stood the house of the worship's old graveyard. Eddie paused briefly, noticing the remnants of the weathered doll lying in front of a tombstone in the shape of a cross. Whether it was the grave of a child, he didn't know, but the sight was disturbing enough to keep it from venturing toward it. Eddie swallowed and moved around the left side of the church, searching for any digging that might have been left behind by gold seekers. Seeing none, he considered himself disappointed. Suddenly, he stopped. Had it simply been the sudden chill of breeze, or had he stepped into a cold zone, an area of sudden and unexplained temperature decline that meant his spirit had passed through him? His muscles tightened and his body shivered slightly. Throwing it off, he continued to wander to the back of the church where he witnessed a boarded up door on the back wall. He moved slowly up the small stack of steps and tried to peer between the slats, but saw nothing but darkness. Eddie moved back down the steps and continued around the church. The building itself was vacant of the stained glass windows depicting the holy scriptures normally seen in today's houses of worship. Just the simple multi-plane glass and double-hung windows of a time long gone. Eddie thought it odd that not a single pane had been broken over the years. There were three windows on each side that allowed him to look into the interior of the structure. Eddie could imagine the Padre bringing his god to the Anglo-labeled heathens that had been living here for centuries, worshiping their own gods. Sometimes, that's the problem with today's thinking. We have forgotten the old ways and accepted the versions created by science and those who wish to control others. Eddie looked up through part of the roof that had collapsed during the fire that night long ago, crushing and scorching everything inside. This night, it framed a pale moon that shone a milky light into the interior of this once hallowed realm, submitting a view of the heavens possibly to be appreciated by Elmalena herself, if she were real. How many of those night skies had she watched? How many times had she relieved the, relived the betrayal and subsequent terror of that night? Eddie was gonna find out. As he stood before the steps that led to the entry of the church, he could feel his heart quicken and the hairs on his forearms come to life. He swallowed purposefully and shrugged it off. This is probably just another hoax of a folklore, he told himself. After all, his magazine's purpose was to either expose or authenticate such things. And aside from a crazy man in a nuthouse, there wasn't anything about this story that gave credence to the existence of Elmalena. He was sure of it. At least he thought he was sure of it. Eddie pulled the digital recorder from his shirt pocket as he ascended the steps, his phone recording the scene. He paused only momentarily to study the motionless church bell hanging above him, silenced by the many changes of seasons. 
A slight breeze ruffled the grasses surrounding the church as Eddie reached out to wrap his tentative fingers around the doorknob. Miraculously, the door opened freely. Eddie slipped his digital recorder into his shirt pocket before fishing a small tactical flashlight from his pants and bathing the church's interior in a cone of bright LED light. Thelmalena was real. He would capture her screams on his recorder and his image on her phone. If she was not, then all he would then all he would have is the noise of the wind and his nervous talking. Following Martinez's lead, he stepped further into the church. His breathing remained calm, but his heart pounded strong enough to be heard in his own ears. As he made his way through blackened remnants of wood that had been pews, he made his way to where the small pulpit would have been. Suddenly, something caught his ears. A hushed scurrying of tiny feet. He swung his flashlight around to enter to the interior of the building quickly, but failed to locate the animal. At least, he hoped it was an animal. The charred floor creaked with his every step and had him questioning its integrity. As he moved carefully forward, his flashlight scanned ahead of him, first side to side, then up and down, then doing an exaggerated figure eight. He felt both apprehensive and exhilarated and couldn't explain it other than he had let the stories work on his subconscious. Jokingly, he quoted Scrooge's immortal line and continued moving forward. His next step landed him on a section of flooring near the back of the church. Suddenly, his weight, all 205 pounds of it, carried his body through the burnt-out church floor, plunging him into pitch-black darkness. All right, Jack, this is the part where we pause to give people a chance to resolve the truth. So Mark gives us an excellent story on what is part mystery, part ghost hunt. Jack just walked away from his piano. I was going to say, what do you think's going on here? But <laughs> I didn't hear, <coughs> sorry, I didn't hear a word you just said. Cool. That's it's cool. allergy season here in uh, northeast Indiana, and it's got a hold of Jack right now. <laughs> Look, man, it's not good. So the question I asked you was, do you have any idea in this part mystery, part ghost story about what is going on with this church? Well, if it's going on for generations, there's only one family that could keep this hoax up for generations, and it's the one family that's been being passed down through. So I think it's that dude who's like, I told my grandchildren, my grandpappy told me. That guy. That guy. That guy. I loved your uh, your accent there. You do it much better than I do. Oh, I didn't know how <laughs> old he was. I wasn't paying that much attention. He's 80. Oh, well then, yeah, he is really old. I don't know. The fact that he was in a bar and we think he was just some 40-year-old dad. Oh, no, no. He's an 80-year-old grandpa. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I set my what, chair up in the worst place because the the divide in our door is like right in your face. So I have to like lean forward to see you. No, nah, it's perfect. This way you can't see the tissue shoved up my nose. <laughs> well, before we get to the reveal, I want to invite everybody to join our newsletter on the Prowl. The link is in the show notes. It comes out every full moon. And I actually got one out this past full moon, although I didn't get to see the full moon because, well, it was raining here. But you can check out past editions on my website. 
And mystery lovers, when you're ready to take on one of mine, check out Widow's Run. The hit and run that took her husband's life was no accident, and now it's up to Diamond to solve the mystery. Small-time crook, mule-loving rancher, lady-in-waiting, Russian bookseller, and the soon-to-be priest. All of them could have done it. Following the stink that greed leaves in its wake reveals big lies and ugly truths. Check out Diamond and Widow's Run. Widow's Run was also season one of Mysteries to Die For. If you can forgive our rookie production level, um, you can enjoy listening to it. And heads up, Jack and I are working on the print version of this season, uh, so you can read the stories that you'll love to solve. We'll let you know when we have a release date. All right, Jack, we can swing into Chapter 8, Eddie and the Well of Souls. Eddie sprung up quickly, coughing from the floating dust of the forgotten past. He checked his body, no broken bones, just some bruising to his legs and his back as he struggled to breathe normally. His hands frantically reached out in the darkness around him for his flashlight and cell phone. Finding both, he clicked the button of the flashlight and checked his cell, making sure it was still recording. To his surprise, it was. The bulky protective case had done its job. As his eyelids cleared away the floating dust that had settled on his corneas, they enlarged at the sight before him. The tunnel seemed to have been carved out long ago, and beyond that, a cave-like room had been dug out beneath the church itself. His LED beam lit up the tunnel walls that were lined with three levels of shelving where skulls had been placed with the intention of scaring off would-be treasure hunters. As Eddie stood regaining his balance, he looked up with the aid of the flashlight. The opening of the hole looked to be about 30 feet above him, reminding him of the cartel entrance he had once seen in a movie, and another two feet above that lay the opening he had created in the church floor. Eddie turned his beam to the tunnel where the heads of the unlucky individuals who had found themselves in this situation, not of their own making, resided. He moved forward, making sure his recorder still rested in his shirt pocket and studied each of them. Every skull seemed to have met its fate by a blade of some kind. A conquistador, a Spanish foot soldier sword probably, Eddie considered, double-edged and extremely deadly. Or perhaps these were the skulls of the indigenous peoples who had stood in the way of the Spanish in their search for untold riches. Eddie breathed deep as he continued down the tunnel, the dampness of it chilling him, until he reached the larger room at the end. Pausing briefly, he panned his cell phone left and right, following the beam of his flashlight as it passed over a handful of boxes stacked on top of a couple of two-by-fours. Eddie rested the flashlight on top of one of the boxes, pulled a pocket knife from his pants pocket, and cut the tape that sealed its contents. Resting the knife next to his flashlight, he opened the box. Eddie's eyes grew large at what he had found. His hands reached in and turned back toward him, the wads of cash coming alive in the LED illumination. I told you not to do this, Hector Martinez said from behind Eddie. I told you to leave, that you were being foolish. Now look what your foolishness has cost you. It's cost you your life. Eddie let the cash fall into the box and turned. Hector stood a good 10 feet away, the gun in his hand pointed at Eddie's direction. I knew this whole El Molina thing was a hustle, Eddie said. I just never figured on this. Hector smiled. Eddie said, so all this is yours. When you ran this town, you embezzled from town funds. 
Either that or you got kickbacks from whatever businesses you bought here. Even though you are young, you are not stupid, Hector said. I did what every politician in this country of yours does. Look out for himself. It is the American way, yes? Eddie shook his head. The system always gets worked by men like you. But if the legend is all BS, how do you explain Ramirez? He swears he saw Elmalena come after him. Hector grinned. Like I said, he was crazy to begin with. His mind made him see things because of the stories he had heard all of his life. And I did not lie to you, my friend. I have never seen her. It was simply a story cooked up by the townspeople many years ago as a way to explain the burning of the church. Anyone who knew the real reason is long dead now. And what reason is that, Eddie challenged, trying to buy time for his mind to think of some way out of this? Humor me. Chapter 9. Are you a praying man? Hector began to elaborate. I'm afraid the only person to actually die in the church was the dear Padre. It seems he got drunk on some wine and fell asleep. The way my father told it to me, he had fallen asleep after he put more wood in the old stove to keep him warm. He forgot to close the door before he drifted off to sleep, and as the wood burned, it popped out glowing embers that landed on his robe, catching it on fire. The Padre awoke to the smell of his own burning flesh. Eddie said, so how did you... So how did the men attribute to Elmalena really die? Hector chuckled and said happily, I killed them. I had to protect what was mine. Some of what I told you was fact, though. They were mainly people looking for the screaming bride or the Spanish gold. Most of them were harmless and found nothing. But when some of them found my money, I had to kill them. Why, I asked. Because it was mine, Hector stressed. They had no right to it. I worked for years for that money. They had no right to take it. I deserved it. All I kept was my fair share for doing what it took to build this town up. After I was voted out, well, things changed. Businesses closed, jobs disappeared. The economy went to hell. So you killed them like the legend foretold, Eddie said, picking up his phone and flashlight, and left them outside the church to make sure they were found. That way the legend would be proven true and you would make others stay away. Yes, but as you see, it had the opposite effect, Hector, Hector motioned toward him. Come here. I lowered a rope ladder down to make it easier for us to get out. You broke through my door when you fell. I'm sorry, my friend, but it's time for you to become Elmalena's next victim. He motioned again with the gun. I'll make it quick for you, I promise. Eddie moved cautiously forward. Hector stepped back to let him pass. Give me your flashlight and your phone. Eddie handed them over. Gracias, Hector said, pointing the beam up the ladder. Now, you first. Up. And don't try anything. My gun will be on you every step of the way. Eddie climbed the rope ladder reluctantly, coming to grips with the fact that the story must be his last. When he emerged from beneath the church floor, Hector was right behind him, gun pointed and ready. Soon the two men stood in silence, both staring at each other in the moonlight shadow of the church interior. Are you a praying man, Eddie? Hector said. Not really, Eddie said. I never found any use for it. Hector waved the gun. You may wish to reconsider your stance, being faced with the coming prospects. Eddie shivered as the church became suddenly cold. A night wind began to stir. Hector's gray hair took flight as both men felt the wind swirling stronger around him. Hector's eyes roamed everywhere now. 
eddies followed. It was the wailing that came quietly at first, growing in strength as the volume of the wind continued to swirl. Eddie noticed Hector's face and turned to see a ghostly apparition rising from the floor just as Ignacio Ramirez had described. Slowly, Amalena's head rose, her beautiful face holding dark eyes as black as the devil's soul. Her arms spread out as she floated in the air before them, her wedding gown billowing airily in the whirlwind that surrounded her. Soon her screams filled their ears, forcing Eddie to cover his in a vain attempt to control his fear. Eddie forced himself to run, his legs moving with strength and purpose. As he ran past Hector, now frozen by fear of seeing all that he had been told since his childhood coming into reality. The old man made no move to stop him as Eddie's left shoulder bounced off the old man as he ran. If Elmalena had been Medusa, it was as if Hector had been turned to stone. His mouth was open, but nothing could be heard, his eyes wide with fear. Eddie glanced back briefly, seeing Elmalena leaning forward and lunging toward them. Eddie bolted toward the closing doors of the church, managed to get his body through, and dove into the dirt outside. When Eddie rolled over, he saw the doors of the church slowly coming together as the screams of Elmalena filled the night, silencing the nocturnal creatures that inhabit it. Eddie witnessed Elmalena's arms fold around Hector, flowed by her wedding dress that seemed to encase him like a silkworm's cocoon. As the doors came to a close, Eddie's mind succumbed to the darkness that swallowed him. Chapter 9, The Dawn of a New Day The next morning, Eddie awoke in the dirt, his mind reeling from the fantastical events of the night before. He slowly rose to his elbows and stared at the doors of the old church bathed in the cleansing rays of the bright morning sun. Had he really seen what he thought he had seen? Had it actually happened? Did the curse truly exist or had it all been a figment of his overactive imagination based on an old man and Rodriguez's story? Slowly, Eddie got to his knees and then to his feet and felt his shirt pocket for his digital recorder. It was missing. Looking around for it, he located it nearby in the dirt. Had he gotten any of it, he wondered? If so, did he get enough of it? And if Hector hadn't turned off his phone, would there be anything on it? And where was his phone? Hector had taken it, his cloudy mind remembered, along with his flashlight. If there was any footage of Elmalena, it was lost. How could he prove any of what he heard? Without his phone, that left the recorder, but the small one-inch screen of the digital device showed the timer had stopped ticking away sometime during the night. Eddie exhaled and rewound the recorder back a bit, and he hit play. Are you a praying man, Eddie? He heard Hector say. Eddie heard himself answer. Not really. I never found any use in it. Then Hector again. You may wish to reconsider your stance, being faced with the coming prospects. Eddie's hand began to shake as the screams of Elmalena welled up in the small speaker. He listened closely, but he couldn't hear himself or Hector, only the retching screams of the vengeful bride. Eddie rewound the recording again and held the digital recorder to his ear, replaying the last bit of the conversation. Hector had said something. Eddie could hear it as Elmalena must have risen from the floor. They were the last words of the old man, spoken with the mix mixture of terrified surprise and unspeakable fright. Hector's voice was clear when he said, Elmalena. 
Eddie figured he had missed hearing it as he collided with Hector on his way out the doors of the church. Eddie stopped the playback, returned the device to his shirt pocket. He looked at the church and decided to retrieve his phone, thinking Hector may have dropped it. He would be safe. After all, it was daylight, and the screaming bride would be at rest. Later, after Eddie had spoken with the police and played them both the digital recording and the cell phone video of the boxes of cash, he would take them to where the town's money had been stashed. Then he would contact his editor after pounding out his article on his laptop in the motel room. If he knew what was good for him, he would give Eddie a raise and enough ink and photos to tell the story right. Eddie grinned. Carl Kolchak had nothing on him. There you have it, Jack, the story of Elmalena. All right, so does the logic work? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It does. It's, it's essentially a, a pretty simple story in that, you know, Hector had uh, embezzled from the town and then hid the money. And I don't mean this in a disrespectful way because I tend to think like Scooby-Doo started me off to be a mystery lover. But it's kind of Scooby-Doo-esque in that we only meet two characters, right? Yeah. So as far as a mystery goes, there wasn't a whole lot to it. But what I really liked about it was that the ghost was real, even though the ghost didn't do it per se. Like that is yeah. a, an unexpected element. It was cool. I think if we follow the logic of everything Hector told him, I mean, I thought Hector baited Eddie into showing up there by telling him about Ignacio. Um, seemed almost like he wanted to have another victim there. But now you got to wonder, did Ignacio actually see the ghost? Because Hector said uh, he was insane. He just kind of, it was a figment of his imagination. Did he really see it? Well, he described it pretty accurately. He did? Well. But then again, everyone described it accurately. That's yeah. how the story went. That is how the story went. That is true. So. I don't know. We'll have to ask Mark whether Ignacio really <laughs> saw him or not. Do you have any interesting facts to share with us this week? Coronado did not find the thing he was supposed to find. So he went from his little place in Mexico all the way up to Kansas and looking for that, what, seven cities of gold or whatever? Yeah. Didn't find it. It said he found a bunch of rocks and lack thereof, so he found, like, the Grand Canyon. He found the Grand Canyon, which, you know, is, isn't that one of the seven wonders of the world? So isn't that maybe one of the seven cities of gold? It's a divot. It's, it's not a It's divot. one of the seven divots of gold. It's not a divot. You are so, so dismissive. I mean, it. maybe the gold is just, like, you can make a lot of money by people coming down there, you know, uh-huh. tourists. Maybe that's what it is. Seven cities of gold is just seven wonders of the world that people can profit off of. Isn't it funny how they talk about something like the Grand Canyon being discovered when there had to be, you know, so many indigenous people who knew exactly where the Grand Canyon was? Yeah. (laughs) It's discovered by people who come from a history that we understand. We don't understand a lot about Native American history because they didn't record it as well because we don't understand their storytelling or languages or we just don't believe it as much, you know? And we don't really study it here. I mean, we talked about that with uh, with Frank's story. If you remember, uh, his one of his characters uh, had a little bit of an unusual name. I can't remember right now. Um, but he fancied himself as a a researcher, and he researched uh, chiefs American. of the of the yeah. Northwest. 
there was a whole bunch we learned kind of doing the research there. It's like, oh, yeah, we learn about totally different people living out here in the Midwest. Yeah. So let me tell everyone a little bit more about our author today. So Mark Edward Langley is the author of the Arthur Nakai series. The first book in this series is The Path of the Dead. Arthur Nakai is an ex-Marine, an ex-member of the Shadow Wolves, an ICE tactical unit recruited by the U.S. government to hunt human traffickers and drug smugglers on the U.S.-Mexico border as part of Homeland Security. Goodreads reviewers gave it a rating of 4.02, with 73% of people rating it either a 4 or a 5. One reviewer wrote, Path of the Dead is well-written and fast-paced suspense thriller, which will take you through some of the most beautiful and rugged country in the U.S. I thoroughly enjoyed this book for the wonderful main character, the imagery of locations, and the American Native culture. Another wrote, I read Tony Hillerman's Leaphorn and Chi books for years. When I saw a brand new author with the story about Native Americans, I jumped right in. I was not disappointed. Full of great characters, this author brought the story to life. Finally, another reviewer wrote, I really like that this book is not your usual serial killer thriller. First, you're in a part of the U.S. that isn't normally featured in books, and second, it features Native Americans in a positive and enlightened way. Third, it is very well written with enough description to bring life without feeling like it's too wordy and dry. The third book in this series, When Silence Screams, came out in 2021, and more stories are in the works. You can find out more information on Mark and his work on his website, markedwardlangley.com, and his social media locations. Well, that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling Mystery Lover about us, giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting the season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Interested in advertising on Mysteries to Die For? Check out our website. Information is in the show notes and on our website, tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. The Legend of Elmalena was written by Mark Edward Langley. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by T.G. Wolf. And thank you to our dogs, Lucy and Mia, for being almost quiet while Jack and I recorded today. All right, Jack, the floor is yours. fell apart there at the end (laughs) thought it was fitting for the ghost story it is fitting for a ghost story let's do it again okay okay one more time really what's the point of 88 keys if you don't use them all exactly